here in the room and online. I want to start with a question this morning, and I want to paint a little scenario for it first. Um, Let's just say that for the next month or so, Monday to Friday, you run an informal survey. And uh, it goes like this. You take a little uh, camping chair out to the corner here of Clover Bar and Y Road, and every time a car stops at the red light, you run your little survey. And you go to the window and you ask this question. What one word characterizes what you know about Christianity. So every car, just as people are coming and going in their normal lives, you ask that question. What one word characterizes what you know about Christianity? What kind of answers do you think you might get? Author Brian Zand tells this story in the prelude to one of his books. A thousand years ago, Prince Vladimir the Great, the pagan monarch of Kiev, was looking for a new religion to unify the Russian people. Toward this end, Prince Vladimir sent out envoys, and they're sent out to investigate all of the great faiths of the neighboring realms. And with the delegation's return, they bring reports to the prince. And some had discovered religions that were dour and austere, and others had discovered religions that were abstract and theoretical. But the envoys who had investigated Christianity in the Byzantine capital of Constantinople reported finding a faith characterized by unbelievable, transcendent beauty. And they found that they did not know if they were in heaven or on earth. In fact, the words that are recorded about what they said when they came back go like this. Then we went to Constantinople, and they led us to the place where they worshiped their God. And we knew not whether we were in heaven or earth, for on earth there is no such vision nor beauty, and we do not know how to describe it. We only know that God dwells among men, and we cannot forget that beauty. Upon receiving the report from Constantinople, uh, Prince Vladimir decides that Christianity is the new faith that he is going to adopt for the Russian people at that point in history. And what impressed the envoys, envoys and what persuaded Prince Vladimir to embrace the faith was not apologetics. It was not the ethics. It was the aesthetics. It was the beauty. And 900 years later, the great Russian writer Dostoevsky coined this phrase, and you may have heard it somewhere, beauty will save the world. And it's a book. It's not integral to the plot or anything. It's just a little line in one of his very long books uh, that caught the attention of many over the years. And this little phrase, beauty will save the world, is something that there's been much discussion about. What did he actually mean? But it's hard not to believe that it had something to do with Dostoevsky's deep Christian faith. 
As you thought about the answers that you might receive out here on the corner of Clover Bar and Y Road or at whatever place you're at right now, the answer to that question that you might ask just any person going by, what of you, what you know about Christianity, what's the one word that would characterize it? Did beauty come to your mind as one of the potential answers that you might get? I know <clears throat> some of you are likely going to want to say right now, really, Rita? Beauty, isn't that a little bit ethereal? Isn't that a little bit fluffy? I mean, come on, we got to be practical. The problems are huge. Things are going on. We need something a little more substantial than beauty. But stay with me. Stay with me, please, because I believe that we all know true beauty when we see it, and it comes in many different forms. As I mentioned in our e-newsletter this week, um, we had one of those experiences as a church family, and it happens many times over, where we saw beauty in a form that we are used to going, yes, that's beautiful, as Pastor Kiera gave birth to their little daughter, baby Addison, and we all celebrated. But you know, I also experienced beauty in places that you wouldn't expect it like at the bedside of one of our church family, as I gathered with the family, and as the tears rolled because they weren't ready to say goodbye. They didn't want him to go. And yet, and yet, in that moment, as we sang a hymn, and as we together prayed, and as we read scripture, there was a beauty in that moment, and the beauty was the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the hope that we have as believers that we will meet again. And I saw it also, and I felt it also as we got the word that our beloved international worker, Colette Baudet, went to be with Jesus. And as I reflected on these past 14 months of her life as she has wrestled with painful cancer, and yet her constant refrain has been, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. And she is with Jesus now. And that is another kind of beauty. We all also know the opposite of beauty, and we do. We know that it exists. We know the depraved ugliness when we see it, when we see it in the micro, one human being being so awful and mistreating another, whether it's with words or with fists. We know it in the macro. We know the tyranny of leaders who don't treat their people well. We know it in the oppressive economic systems that we see around our globe. There's a fair bit of ugliness in our world right now, isn't there? But I truly believe that our whole planet is aching to see another alternative, to see a different story. I believe with Dostoevsky that beauty will save the world. And scripture talks about this. Stay with me because whether you're someone who has been a follower of Jesus for a long time or someone that's just investigating this faith, 
I really believe that there's something here for you. And today, as we continue our series, our extraordinary nobody is going to help us see that beauty matters to God and that beauty is at the heart of and integral to the gospel story, to biblical redemption. And you know what, I actually chose that word integral really intentionally because it means that it is necessary to complete the whole. It is essential. Beauty is central and essential to the gospel story, and we risk a great deal when we dismiss it. So Bezalel, Bezalel is our guy today, and here's some background that we're going to need. We find his story in the second half of the second book of the Bible, the book of Exodus. The children of Israel, thousands of them, are camping out in the desert. They're on their way to the promised land. In the first half of this book of Exodus, God has rescued the people from an evil, oppressive ruler in Egypt, from Pharaoh, and they know, these people know firsthand the ugliness of brutal oppression. And now here they are at the foot of Mount Sinai, and God says to them, I will be your king, I will be your leader, if you will have me on my terms. God says he wants to enter into a covenant relationship with these people. He says he will personally look after them and they will be his treasured possession. Their side of the story is that they have to let God be God. They have to let God make up the rules and they have to uh, follow his ways. And if they do, their whole society is going to become so shaped by God's goodness and justice that they will become a radiant representation of him to the rest of the nations around them. And you know what? When the children of Israel hear this, they agree readily. They say, this is good. Then Moses, uh, then God tells Moses that he actually wants to take the relationship one step farther. He wants to come and actually personally dwell with them. He says, we need a place to meet. Now, this is pretty incredible because if you remember, if you're familiar with the narrative of Scripture this far, you will remember that God already created a beautiful place for mankind to meet with him. You will remember that at the very beginning of the story, we hear the fact that God created a beautiful garden and that God and man walked and talked. In fact, it says, in the cool of the day, God would go and talk with the humans in this beautiful space. But the humans had decided, we don't want to be in this space where God is the ruler, where he makes up the rules. We want to be the ones to make up the rules. We want to be God. And so they turned their back on God and on his space and on his rule and walked away from that. And because of that, they could not be in the presence of God and they were banished from the garden. But God never, ever gives up on his people. And his grace, his grace in 
offering again to create a beautiful space for them is amazing. So this offer to Moses to be present with them, to help them create a specific place where they can meet him, should really stop us in our tracks. This is an amazing God. And so here's one of the verses, and there's many of them, but here's one of the verses where it talks about this specifically, Exodus 25 uh, in verses 8 and 9. Have them, this is God speaking to Moses, have them, the children of Israel, make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all of its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. So remember, where are they? They're out camping. They're out camping in a desert. So this is going to be a tent. And actually, in Scripture, it's often called the tent of meeting. But this is not like, okay, guys, just run down to PV Mart and grab any old tent you see because any old tent will do and we can just meet there. It's not like that. In fact, there are seven chapters of detailed architectural blueprints about what this tent of meeting will look like, what it will smell like, what it will feel like, what it will sound like. And guess what? This place is to be beautiful. Some of the descriptions given are that the fabrics are to be purple and blue, representing royalty. God is to be their king. Everything is to be covered with gold and silver and bronze, all of these precious metals and beautiful gemstones. And do you know what the motif is? The motif is of a beautiful garden, reminiscent of the Garden of Eden. Listen to this, just one little tiny snippet of the kind of detailed instructions that God gave for just one of the pieces of furniture that's going to be in this tent. Okay, ready? Make a lampstand of pure gold, hammered out its base and shaft, and make its flower cups, buds, and blossoms. Three cups shaped like almond flowers with buds and blossoms are to be on one branch, three on the next branch, and the same for all six branches extending from the lampstand. God wants the place where he's going to meet with his people to be gorgeous. So Moses gets all of these instructions, but who is going to build it? Of course, enter our man Bezalel. Now listen to this little bit of an extended passage that talks about what Bezalel is called to do. Then the Lord said to Moses, Look, I have specifically chosen Bezalel, son of Uri, grandson of Hur of the tribe of Judah. I have filled him with the Spirit of God, giving him great wisdom, ability, and expertise in all kinds of crafts. He is a master craftsman, expert in working with gold, silver, and bronze. He is skilled in engraving and mounting gemstones and in carving wood. He is a master at every craft. And I have personally appointed Oliab, son of Ahishamach, of the tribe of Dan, to be his assistant. Moreover, I have given special skills to all the gifted craftsmen so that they can make all the things I have commanded you to make the tabernacle, the Ark of the Covenant, 
The arks cover the place of the atonement, all of the furnishings of the tabernacle, the table and its utensils, the pure gold lampstand that we just read about, with all its accessories, the incense altar, the altar of burnt offering with all its utensils, the wash basin and its stand, the beautifully stitched garments, the sacred garments for Aaron the priest and the garments for his sons to wear as they minister as priests the anointing oil, the fragrant incense for the holy place. So as you take this passage and then you look at all of those other descriptions, there's quite a picture that is actually painted and and, uh, various artists over the years have taken all of that and they've tried to imagine what was this tabernacle like? And here's one of the artistic representations, just to give us an idea. This is the whole courtyard, and, and we see the place for the burnt offerings, for the sacrificial system, and then we see the tabernacle itself. And here's a little bit closer up a uh, picture of the tabernacle. So there it is, the tabernacle. And our man, Bezalel, is in charge of this whole project. We don't know a lot about him or his story. We don't know anything uh, much about what he's like, but there are some actually very profound and important things that we do learn. Let me just go back to a couple of things that we just read. First, I don't know if this stood out to you, but first, the fact that God knows Bezalel's name, that God calls him by name. I'm terrible at names, and this is something I, I really do not like about myself, but I am really bad with names. It's like my brain just goes blank, and I might have known you for like 30 years, and I see you, and it's just like this blank, and I hate that. In fact, true confession, if you come down, uh, Jesse was saying, you know, you can come to the front for prayer afterwards, and, and if you happen to come and I happen to pray with you, even if I've known you, and sometimes even if you just told me your name, I forget. And I hate that. So if you hear me praying for you and saying things like, "Um, just for this dear brother or this dear sister, it's truly, it's because I can't remember your name. So, and I hate that. I hate that. But God never forgets a name. He knows you personally this morning. He knows your name. He knows all about you. Just like Bezalel, he knows how he created you. He knows what he is what he has given you as gifts that you can bring to the world. He knows what he has called you to in the good work uh, that he is doing. But let's let's go on, because I really want you to see this next thing in that passage we just read. It says, I have filled him, Bezalel, with the Spirit of God. This is really significant. This is actually the first time in Scripture that it's specifically recorded that God says that he has filled someone with his spirit. And this is not a prophet. It's not a priest. It's not doing some, uh, someone going to do something that we would typically call religious work. This is an artist. God has filled Bezalel with his spirit to create beauty. I have filled him with the spirit of God, giving him great wisdom, ability, and expertise in all kinds of crafts. He is a master craftsman. 
This should be incredibly encouraging to any of you in the room that have artistic bents, whether it's like in the music that we've already enjoyed together, writing, visual arts. You can see some work of some of the artists in our church family out in the atrium. But whatever kind of creative gift God may have given you, be encouraged. God gave you that gift. Use it for his glory. He likes it. And he loves the beauty that you bring to the world. And, you know, we notice in that passage, not only is, is Bezalel an amazing artist, he's also a really good leader because God gives him a second in command and he gives him many other people that are going to work together to finish this massive project that God has given them to do, the entire thing. And, and if we go back to that picture, I, I mean, there is a lot here when you think of all that went into creating something like this. And, you know, here's something else I want us to just think about. We read that list of all the different pieces of furniture that are there in the tabernacle. We don't have time to go over all of them. They're incredibly significant, and they have beautiful symbolism. But I want to point to one thing. I want to point to the Ark of the Covenant, the stunningly beautiful box in which the Ten Commandments are kept. If you're uh, familiar with Scripture, you, you probably familiar with this, or if you're like me and you're of the vintage of uh, things like uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, those kind of movies, we, we, we probably have some familiarity with the Ten Commandments and with the Ark of the Covenant. Um, and again, uh, here, here is a picture of one artist's idea of what this might have looked like. And again, it's just an idea, but there's the Ten Commandments, there's Aaron's, a piece of Aaron's staff, and the bowl with the manna representing God's provision. So they're to be in the ark. But here's the most important thing. The beauty of the container, the beauty of the container points to the beauty of the content. And I don't know if you've thought of it this way before, but the Ten Commandments are actually a truly beautiful way to live. See, the Ten Commandments are a way in which God, as their king, is asking them to live in a way that love and honors others. We talk a lot in our day about individual rights and freedoms. Um, there's the Bill of Rights, all these things. God's law could be called a bill of other people's rights, a bill of other people's rights. See, every Israelite was responsible to protect the freedom of others. Think about just one of the Ten Commandments. It's, it's one that maybe we don't talk about as much, uh, but it's the commandment about the Sabbath. And this is a really important one of God's commands. So with the Sabbath, this is the place where seven days, one of those days, is set aside it very intentionally for rest. And it's a gift that is given. Well, in the community where God makes the rules, it's not like the master of the house gets to have a day off and everybody else serves him. No, not at all. Every single person, right down to the Animals that work in the fields are given the gift of a day of rest. And the whole community is instructed to work together to provide for this to be able to happen and to protect it for everyone. 
And here's a side note. A little side note is that actually in the fall, we're going to do a series on Sabbath. And I am really excited about this. I think there is something here that we desperately need as a church and as a society. I'm looking forward to that. So the tabernacle is not only eye-catching, but it is deeply, deeply good all the way through. But as good and as life-giving as God's laws are, we all know that Israel fails miserably time and again at keeping their side of the covenant, at keeping God's law. But God already had a plan, which leads us to the most stunning thing that Bezalel was asked to create in the place where the presence of God was going to personally reside with his people. And it's part of the Ark of the Covenant. Listen to this. Listen to this. You shall make a mercy seat. Some translations trans that the place of atonement. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold, and you shall make two cherubim of gold, of hammered work shall you make them on the two ends of the mercy seat. You shall put the mercy seat on the top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony, the Ten Commandments, that I give you. There, there, at the mercy seat, I will meet you. This is magnificent. This is incredible. Our good, our kind, our loving, our generous God knows that there is no way that we, the children of Israel, or anyone is going to be able to keep his commandments perfectly. And he provides from the very beginning for a place for us to come. The place where we meet him is actually at the mercy seat. And God's presence does. It does fill the tabernacle. By the end of the book of Exorcist, when, when this tent of meeting is all, all made and all of the beauty of it has been completed, completed by Bezalel and the team, God's presence comes and he comes personally in a pillar of cloud by day and fire by night and he personally and lovingly leads his people. Time passes and the tabernacle is replaced by King Solomon's temple, which is much more glorious and splendid than the first tent of meeting. But it's not long before the beauty of the temple is only skin deep and the ugliness of corruption and oppression and self-centeredness and greed rule the day. And God and his ways are ignored and his presence leaves. But God is faithful, he is faithful, and he promises that a new way is coming, a new covenant is coming. And so, very unexpectedly, Jesus comes on the scene and he actually says that he, that he is the new tent. He is the new meeting place for God and for people. Listen to John 1 verse 14. It says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling. That word actually can be translated tabernacle. He made his dwelling among us and we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. Jesus is the one who shows us fully 
what it means to live out the commandments of God. And his life is beautiful. And his cross is the ultimate fulfillment of the commands of God, that we live in self-sacrificing ways for others. And he becomes, he becomes the ultimate mercy seat, the place where now everyone has the opportunity to meet with God. Jesus is the beauty that saves the world. And now Jesus asks us, his church, to be the winsome, the beautiful extension of his presence in the world. Ephesians 2.22 says it like this. In him, in Jesus, you, the church, are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by his spirit. We the body of Christ, are to be the place where the weary, wounded world can come and can find the hope and the beauty and the wonder of God, the place where they can find his mercy. The ancients said there are three things that make a good and desirable society, and they are goodness, truth, and beauty. In the book I referred to at the beginning, Beauty Will Save the World, Brian Zand says this, to a skeptical world, we are generally, as Christians, more accustomed to defend Christianity in terms of its truth and goodness. But beauty also belongs to the Christian faith. And beauty has a way of sneaking past defenses and speaking in unique ways. To a generation suspicious of truth claims and unconvinced by moral assertions, beauty has a surprising allure. And everything about Jesus Christ is beautiful. His life, his miracles, his grace, his teaching, even his death maybe especially his death, and certainly his resurrection, are all indescribably beautiful. A Christianity that is deeply enchanted by Christ's beauty and thus formed and fashioned by this beauty has the opportunity to present to a skeptical and jaded world an aspect of the gospel that has been too rare for far too long. So our task, our task is not to protest the world into a certain kind of moral conformity, but rather to attract the world to the beauty of our Savior Jesus. And we do this best not by protests or political action, but by showing the world what a life shaped by Jesus looks like. The winsome posture of Jesus is never this. As we condescendingly and arrogantly beat others over the head with truth. And it's certainly not this 
because we're on a disapproval tour of somebody's life. The winsome posture of Jesus is this. It's the posture of love and forgiveness. It's the place where mercy triumphs over judgment. And the world is aching for us to be this kind of people. Amen. I am challenging you this morning. I am challenging you to ask the Holy Spirit, like we've already been challenged several times this morning, to invade your life again, to show you the places that don't represent him well. Because his dream for us, his dream for us is that we be the kind of people that when we are encountered by others, they go, there's something beautiful about their life and the way it works. They, they remind me of someone and they might not even know that the person we remind them of is Jesus. I dream that we as a church more and more become the kind of people that will beckon the world around us and graciously say, come with me. I know a place. I know a place we can meet God and I know a place we can authentically meet each other and it's called the mercy seat. Will you pray with me? Our merciful, beautiful God, we come to you this morning and we just humbly ask again that you would take our lives, that you would mold them, that you would shape them. So my prayer, my prayer is the words of an old chorus. My prayer is for all of us, let the beauty of Jesus be seen in me. All his wondrous compassion and purity. O thou spirit divine, all my nature refine till the beauty of Jesus be seen in me. Thank you, Jesus. We love you. Amen. Amen. Well, like Jesse mentioned at the beginning, if you'd like to talk or pray um, with someone, there'll be some of us down here at the front, or you can ask anyone with a lanyard uh, to pray with you. Um, We'll be back next weekend. I'm looking forward to bringing you another message, this time on a woman named Tabitha, and we look forward to that. God bless you this week, and may the beauty of Jesus encapsulate all that you do. Have a good week.